Hi, I'm James Fortier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. On today's episode, we'll be talking fireflies, the threats they face, and some of the ways those threats might be lessened. You've probably seen some of the press coverage of this article already, so we tried to dig in a little bit deeper and capture some of the details that you might not have already seen. And for this interview, I'm joined by Sarah Lewis and Michael Reed of Tufts University, as well as Candace Fallon of the Xerces Society. And without further ado, let's go straight to that interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Before we get into some of the specific threats that are facing fireflies, I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of briefly discuss exactly which species we're talking about. Uh, you know, I and, and many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the fireflies that we see populating our backyards on summer nights. Uh, but we're really talking about a diversity of species here. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of that? So one of the things that um, takes a lot of people aback is learning that there isn't just a single species of firefly. People are really surprised to learned that there are more than 2,000 different kinds of fireflies around the world. And so um, part of what we're trying to do is to differentiate among these species and figure out which ones are most at risk. And so and these species, are, are they spread worldwide? Yeah, so fireflies are found all around the world, pretty much on every continent except for Antarctica. And um, the, uh, in North America, uh, we have Candace, about 150-odd species of fireflies. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think, well, I think, too, one of the neat things that may, many people may not know about fireflies is that, you know, we have our flashing species, but there are also active fireflies as well as glowworms, um, which aren't quite as, you know, flashy as their name suggests. Okay, great. And so let's uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the survey you conducted. Um, you know, who were you surveying, and and what kinds of things were you asking them? So this paper is based on a survey that we conducted of firefly experts around the world. So um, we sent the survey out by email to about three hundred and fifty um, people who are members of the Fireflyers International Network. This is a group of um, firefly scientists, conservationists, people who are, um, some of them are like um, tourist guides, tour operators. These are people who are really familiar with fireflies in their local area. So they're not like random people that we, you know, dragged in off the street. They're um, people who go out at night and they're out there, you know, in the dark looking at fireflies um, night after night after night, season after season after season. And um, so it basically falls into the category of expert opinion. And we asked them to um, score each of about a dozen uh, threats, possible threats, to score each one as um, what they considered to be, on a scale from zero to five, what they considered to be the most important threats to fireflies in their geographical region. Okay, and we've talked a lot on this show, and, and I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the fact that you know many insect species are, are under threat right now. Uh, but what are, the, what are the threats facing fireflies like? Well, fireflies are that different from a lot of species in that habitat loss globally seems to be the top threat. Uh, but they also are affected by pesticides, which seem to be 
clobbering insects worldwide. Uh, artificial light at night is an issue that's more specialized for fireflies because they actually depend on light for signaling. And in parts of the world, harvest seems to be a problem. It used to be a bigger problem here in the U.S., but it's less of a problem now. And what would, what would harvest refer to in that description? Well, <clears throat> not so much kids running around with jars capturing things, but uh, for a long time, there was more formal harvest in the U.S. that was done on behalf of uh, chemical companies that harvested species to get luciferase, which is a key ingredient in making their little butts glow. And it's also used in medical world as a bacteria indicator. So it's, until it was synthesized, it was the only real source of this. So they used to pay kids to go out and harvest millions of fireflies. Uh, I wanted to touch briefly on habitat loss, if you don't mind. What, in what ways are those habitats threatened globally? You know, is this land that's being cleared for subdivisions or human establishments? Is it farmland or is it all of the above, that kind of thing? So, um, you know, the, there are some species of fireflies that are really habitat generalists. So they can live pretty much anywhere. And here in the U.S., we're lucky, at least in the United States, we're lucky to have one particular firefly species, um, it's sometimes called the Big Dipper firefly, the Tinus pyralis, that is a habitat generalist. It can live pretty much anywhere, and that species is doing really well. They're very, very abundant in urban parks like Central Park, Prospect Park, New York City. They're on the mall in Washington, D.C. Um, they're, they're pretty much everywhere. They're the common firefly that you'll see flying around in the early evening um, getting caught in jars, as a matter of fact. And so habitat loss is a, especially a problem for those firefly species that are um, they can only live in a particular habitat. So they're habitat specialists, and they might only live, for example, and, and they, they specialize in different habitats. So the habitats that are being lost that are of concern are the ones where these particular firefly species can only live there and nowhere else. One example is um, in the U.S. is a species um, called the Bethany Beach Firefly. Actually, Candace, maybe you want to talk about the Bethany Beach Firefly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so this firefly came to our attention because um, at the moment we think it's only, we only know of seven locations where it's found, and the largest known population is in this kind of dense urban residential area along the Delaware coast um, in the U.S. And um, there's been a lot of uh, building going on, construction. There have been boardwalks built for future vacation homes. And so the habitat of this firefly has really been kind of decimated. Um, the plants have been cut down. Um, and of course, you have all the other issues with surrounding residential areas, which is you know, increased light pollution and um, pesticide use and things like that. But we actually worked with the um, Center for Biological Diversity last year to petition to have the species considered for ESA listing, uh, Endangered Species Act listing, because um, we're so concerned about its persistence. Yeah, so that that's a that's a great example from the U.S. Um, a, a endemic, probably endemic to um, this one part of Delaware, and it only lives in this, these freshwater wetlands that are very close to the ocean. So habitat loss is a big problem for this 
that one species. Another example is from Southeast Asia, where there are um, congregating mangrove fireflies. So these are fireflies that, um, where the males congregate in particular trees that are along mangrove rivers. And the males gather in these trees night after night after night, um, year after year, often in the same trees. And they flash together to attract females. Females fly into these trees, mate with the male, and then the females go maybe a few hundred yards away. They lay their eggs in the muddy substrate that is um, behind the river's edge. The eggs hatch out into larvae. The larvae um, spend a couple of months um, uh, developing. They are predaceous. All fireflies are predaceous as larvae, so they're eating a particular kind of mangrove snail that lives in that habitat. And when they get big enough, they turn back, metamorphose into adults, and um, hop back into the tree and continue their life cycle. So the mangrove forest um, along these tidal rivers is being um, cut down for mostly for agricultural use. So um, oil palm plantations, shrimp farms. And as that habitat is destroyed, it destroys not only the place where the adults are doing their courtship displays, but it also um, destroys the habitat where the rest of the firefly life cycle and their prey, the larval prey, um, live. So that's a disappearance of habitat that's going to um, wipe out those populations of, um, they're called teroptics fireflies. So it sounds like a case in which you have such a high number of species and such a varied set of life histories that Habitat loss is probably hitting them from many different directions around the globe. Yeah, and habitat loss interacts, right, Michael, with a lot of other things. Like right. So is habitat's loss. Another worry is that it's fragmented. And for a lot of these fireflies, they are very poor dispersers. They, if they get cut off from the rest of the population, they don't really have a way of joining them. And small populations are at risk from random events like a, a bad winter or something like that. So almost anything that causes habitat loss that you can think of is affecting some firefly somewhere. And uh, de degradation can be a bad thing too. If your, your habitat might be there, but it's getting to be lower and lower quality. And that could be because of alteration of the landscape or a pollutant or something like that. And um I'll just jump in to say that climate change and habitat loss obviously interact very strongly. And so um, recently got an email from a, a firefly expert in Australia who said that um, for Australia, actually, surprisingly, um, the, the biggest threat that she perceives to fireflies in Australia, which are kind of flying under the radar, most Australians don't even know that there are fireflies in Australia. But um, Leslie Ballantyne, Dr. Leslie Ballantyne does, and she's, she considers drought to be the major threat to fireflies in Australia and now um, also fires. And so there are um, the fireflies in Australia, as in most places, rely on a certain amount of moisture at, during all stages of their life cycle. And so drought um, associated with climate change causing places that used to be suitable for fireflies, those habitats have um, been degraded or disappeared, so they're no, no longer appropriate habitat for fireflies. And so she considers um, 
continuing drought in Australia and um, fires associated with that drought to be major threats to fireflies there. Okay, so I think that gives you know our, our listeners a good baseline for some of the threats that are related to habitat loss. Let's move on to the second highest scoring item, though, um, which is one that a lot of the media coverage about your article has been focused on, which is artificial light at night. Um, how does that pose a particular problem for fireflies? Andis. <laughs> well, um, artificial light at night is a real issue for species that are communicating with light, which is a lot of our firefly species, especially as adults. Um, all of the, the larvae make light, but um, basically, it light drowns out their signals. So, if you think about, you know, it's two fireflies um, flashing to each other and trying to communicate, find each other to mate. Uh, when you have a lot of other light. In the environment, it makes it more difficult for them to see those lights and to respond to each other. Yeah, so um, one of the cool things about, uh, well, I don't know if it's cool, but um, one of the second part of our paper, uh, in addition to the reporting the results of the survey, we had about 50 respondents who scored all of the threats. And so we report the results of, um, uh, of the expert opinion survey. We also review all the evidence that we have for how these particular threats, the scientific evidence that, that has been accumulating over the years, for how these threats do affect firefly populations. And it's really only in the last 10 years that we've got very um, good information uh, from experimental studies on how artificial light disrupts courtship. And we know that it does in a couple of different species, and so in several different species. So a lot of studies have been done on um, adding uh, light at night to the environment of the um, common European glowworm, which is the species is Lamparis noctiluca. It's found um, pretty much all over Europe, and it's the only firefly species that occurs in um, in the UK. So a lot of studies have been done on it, and what those studies have found is that um, all different type, types of artificial light at night decrease the ability of males to find the females. So the females, as Candace pointed out, these are um, this is a species where the females glow, the males don't glow as um, as adults, and they fly around looking for something that's glowing down on the ground. The females are also flightless. And so, um, hence the name glowworm. They're glowing um, to attract males. And the males can't find females if there's a, a certain level of artificial um, light at night. It's also been shown for the flashing lightning bug fireflies in the United States, again, for, for several different species, that um, if there's artificial light, the, um, the males will continue to flash, but the females don't respond. And so um, all of this is um, pretty good evidence that artificial light interferes with the courtship signals of these um, glowing or flashing fireflies and will diminish their reproductive success. And I'm wondering, does the frequency of that light matter at all? Or is it, is it just generally speaking, any form of light will interfere with their courtship displays? So different species of fireflies have different visual sensitivity. And in some experiments that have been done on um, some uh, Asian fireflies in Taiwan, 
they're sensitive to um, one particular wavelength of light, one color of light, whereas fireflies in the U.S. are sensitive to other wavelengths of light. And so something you could tune the color of light, but it might not work for all fireflies. So um, one reason for that change in visual sensitivity is that evolutionarily they've um, they've diverged from a common ancestor. They're uh, occupying different environments. And also, different fireflies are active at different times of night. So the fireflies that are active in the evening have uh, a very different visual system than the fireflies that are active late at night. So there, there are um, many different kinds, uh, frequencies, uh, wavelengths of uh, artificial light have been tested, and they all pretty much all the ones that you would see, you know, streetlights and floodlights and things like that, they all have the same effects, um, similar effects on uh, firefly courtship. So we're not getting out of that problem easily by tweaking the color temperature of, of our streetlights or something like that. Correct. There was, there was some hope that we might be able to do that, but as more information has come in from scientific studies, it be, has become clear that there's no magic bullet color for um, for light that would be firefly friendly. We, we um, in the paper we make several suggestions about um, things that we can do to reduce the impact of artificial light at night on fireflies. Okay, and I hope we get into that in just a second. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to um, chat just really quickly about pesticide use. And you know, are fireflies affected? you know, in any ways uniquely as a result of, um, you know, their exposure to pesticides? Uh, or is this a common problem that is, you know, similar to that which would be faced by, you know, all insects? Yeah, so there are actually, you know, as we kind of mentioned in our paper, there are very few studies looking at direct impacts to fireflies. I believe there's only been two published studies looking at how pesticides affect them. Um, but we can infer effects from studies on other species, other species of beetles. Um, and we can also think about how pesticides such as herbicides might affect their habitat, which is true for many other invertebrates, um, or even thinking about how it might affect their prey, which are you know, these soft-bodied invertebrates like slugs and snails and um, earthworms and things like that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just mention that um, quite recently, uh, just in the last couple of years, there was a, uh, a study done, I think it was done in Maryland, um, and it was a field study comparing insect abundance in, um, in corn plots that had been planted either with like regular corn seeds or um, corn seeds that had been treated with uh, neonicotinoids. So um, nearly all of the listeners might not know that nearly all the corn and soybean seeds in, sold in the United States are routinely coated with um, various neonic insecticides, um, including um, imidacloprid. And um, in this study, um, what they found was that in the plots, the corn plots that had been planted with the um, neonic treated seeds, there was quite a substantial, about a 70% reduction in the abundance of adult fireflies compared to the control plots. Now, this is just one study. and um, But the authors of the study, um, their opinion was that this is most likely due to higher mortality of the uh, 
firefly larvae in the soil as a result of leaching of the uh, insecticides that were on the seeds into the soil. One thing that many people don't realize about fireflies is that um, they're not just like the you know very ethereal adults that we see flying around at night. They actually have a they have a life history uh, life cycle that where they spend quite a lot of their the majority of their lifespan is spent um, in the case of U.S. fireflies underground. And so, in the larval stage, uh, also in the egg and in the pupal stage, fireflies get exposed to any kind of um, toxins, pesticides, pollutants that are in the soil. And so um, that's something that people don't necessarily think about. If you apply something to your soil, it's going to affect um, fireflies larvae in addition to any other um, pest insects that you might be trying to get rid of. And the way insecticides work, they tend to be broad spectrum. So they do things like interfere with neurotransmission. So there's not a particular spray we use to just kill mosquitoes that kills all invertebrates. So it's hard to get out of the way of that. That's quite interesting. And I think we've given our listeners probably by now um, a pretty grim view of the potential future for <laughs> fireflies. And I'm no, wondering no, no. now uh, what, what we might do to uh, discuss some of the things that might mitigate some of these effects or reverse them or ensure that these species, um, which are so charismatic and well-loved, are uh, with us well into the future. Yeah. So one of the things I really, really want to emphasize is that in this paper, we did not say that fireflies are going extinct. Um, what we were trying to do was to kind of get out in front of what people are reporting, and in some cases we have good evidence for declining populations of fireflies. Um, and by getting out in front and identifying what the threats are to these firefly populations, we're hoping that we can keep fireflies around for a long, long time. So I think the message in our paper is much more hopeful and perhaps the media coverage um, led people to believe. We really, um, we, we think that there are, what we're really hoping to do is to be able to identify specific firefly species that actually are more at risk from these threats than other ones. And we talked about um, the lightning bug fireflies, especially the ones that fly in complete darkness might be more susceptible than others to light pollution. The habitat specialists and the dietary specialists are going to be more susceptible to habitat loss and degradation. Unfortunately, all fireflies are going to be susceptible to pesticides. But um, so once we're able to identify the species that are most at risk from these threats, we can actually um, develop plans to, um, to preserve them. And so I think our message is really a hopeful one that um, we're working really hard to try to keep fireflies around for um, for a long, long time. And one of the other things is to get people out and monitor because there's very little that's been done except for a few species. And this could be a good opportunity for citizen science to come out and contribute. Um, if you aren't monitoring, you don't even know what species are around, it's hard to figure out what to do to protect them. That's a really, really important point. So um, with 2,000 different species of fireflies around the world and their global distribution, this is a really monitoring firefly populations to track long-term trends in species abundance over time. It's a big job. And so we could really use help 
um, from citizen science projects like Firefly Walk, which is um, now run by Massachusetts Audubon Society, but it is um, all across North America. So anybody who is willing to um, help us collect data uh, on firefly abundance, we just need to know what species it is, and then tracking abundance over time would be really, really useful. So I would encourage people who are interested in contributing to this citizen science effort in the US, or there are many in other countries too, um, to, to start um, going out at night just like once or twice a week during the firefly season and um, count the flashes in their backyard. It would be so helpful for us. To, to build on that too, you know, things that people can do, I think collecting baseline data is really critical to understanding, you know, where our fireflies are and how they're doing, but also just really simple actions like preserving habitat, uh, restoring habitat for fireflies, you know, thinking about those different life history needs and providing for that, whether you have a yard or you're working with someone in the natural area and doing what you can to, you know, eliminate or control light pollution, whether it's turning off outside lights at night or using motion sensors so they're not on all the time. Um, and really considering, you know, cosmetic uses of pesticides and is this necessary? Do I need to apply it? And holding off if not. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And so, um, you know, I think that it's pretty much, if people have been paying attention, it should be on their radar that lawns, monocultures of lawns are really, really not a good way to um, to protect Earth's biodiversity. And that is something that also applies to fireflies. So if you think you need to have a really, really green lawn and you're going to be um, maintaining that lawn by putting down a lot of pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, you're going to be killing fireflies. And so you can't both want to have, you have a really beautiful manicured lawn and have fireflies in your lawn um, over the long term. It's time to redefine beauty. Time to redefine beauty. <laughs> have, a, have your lawn look like an old field. Do work with native plants. You know, if you uh, do that, you can cut back on watering, cut back on pesticides. Rethink yeah, and you'll have a lot more fireflies because, as we mentioned earlier, fireflies really need moisture in all their different stages, especially like the eggs and the larvae are very susceptible to desiccation. If your grass is longer, if you have a meadow instead of a lawn, the soil will retain moisture for a much longer time. And firefly larvae, or firefly females, are going to love that for laying their eggs, and the larvae will survive better too. You'll have more fireflies. Yeah, we always tell people to embrace the wild and, you know, allow little unkempt areas, but, and even things like leaf litter or, you know, down logs can provide habitat for fireflies as well. And that also helps improve the moisture. Definitely. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic note on which to leave it, you know, it, one in which people can uh, provide fireflies better habitat uh, by not doing something, perhaps, rather than by doing something. Um, I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me today. Uh, those sound like great actionable next steps for people and also for research. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.